It is Shabbat and greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Blessings to you this Kadosh Kadosh Sabbath. Greet one another in the chat and remember you can always connect six days a week at TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect. We are in our Torah cycle this week and this week's Torah parasha comes to us from Bereshit Genesis chapter 41. And it extends through to Genesis chapter 44, verse 17. It is entitled Miketz. Miketz, which means in the Hebrew, at the end of. At the end of. What I love about this particular section of Scripture, last week's Parsha, this week's Parsha, we are looking at the life of Joseph, Yosef, which is a prophetic picture about the end times and about the redemption that comes through Moshiach Yahusha, of course, Messiah Ben Joseph. So let's just jump right into the text today. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed, and see, he stood by the river. And see, there came up out of the river seven well-favored cows, and they fed in the meadow. And see, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ill-favored and lean, and stood by the other cows upon the edge of the river. And the ugly and lean cows did eat up the seven well-favored and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke, and he slept, and he dreamed a second time, and see, seven ears of corn came upon one stalk, abundant and good, and see, seven thin ears, blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them, and the seven thin ears devoured the seven abundant and full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and see, it was a dream." Awakening from a sleep cycle. Awakening from a sleep cycle. How many people are awakening from a sleep cycle right now, currently in this world? What is going on? I've awoken to this. What happened to the world while I was asleep? In my sleep cycle, I never really took the Bible seriously. I never really took the end times things seriously. I even talk with secular youth, and they're talking about the end times. Because people are awakening, awakening from a sleep cycle and seeing, wow, look what is going on in Egypt. Have you been slumbering in the world? Slumbering and slumbering. And then all of a sudden in the past 18 months, we've been woken up. We've awakened from our sleep cycle to a world full of hardship. Where your hopes and dreams just seem to be evaporating before your eyes. Your freedoms, faith, health, all seem to just be evaporating before your very eyes. Now, this week's Torah Pasha comes to us after the account of Judah and Tamar. There's a break in the narrative. So prophetically, it's after Judah departs from his brothers and goes it alone in the nations. If you think of Judaism, it departed from the ten northern tribes. Many that got scattered in the nations came to faith in Messiah ben Joseph. But Judah departed and went off to Babylon, studying the Mishnah, the Talmud, and all of those types of text. And they've actually picked up the traits of Babylon. Judah has departed from his ten brothers. This is where we're at prophetically now. Judaism really isn't following the Torah. It's more Talmud and Mishnah commentaries on the, by the rabbis on the Torah. Whereas many in the nations are believers in Joseph, but they believe that Joseph is an Egyptian. He's got eye makeup on, he's got a sun god halo, and they've dressed him up like a pagan sun god. So you can see prophetically, we're at this time where there is an awakening also spiritually to their people's heritage, who you are as Israel. 
the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Now, in chapter 41, verses 1 through 8, which I just read, this is the end time shadow. Think about it. There's a calamity. There's a calamity in the land of Israel which leads the inhabitants, the brothers, and later Jacob to come down into Egypt. And Egypt, of course, is a metaphor, a picture of the world. And this is where they are going to find the solution to their problem. So by leaving Israel today, prophetically, Zionism and the state, and coming to the nations for help in this time where we've awoken to a sweet sleep cycle, inadvertently will many Jewish people come to know Joseph, their tribal brother? Will they? Well, we shall see. Even though they didn't recognize him at first, he ends up leading them to salvation, doesn't he? He's the bread man of life. He's the one who prepares the way, brings in the storage. The bread man of life. Now, our exile in the land of plenty, this is where we're at now, right? Seems to be the land of plenty. But economically, there's a lot of shortages. There's shortages coming. So yes, it might be the land of plenty right now, but it's fabricated. It's propped up. It is a fiat system. It's a house of cards, a tinderbox, if you will. So our exile in the land of plenty, it's supposedly to help us benefit our tribal brothers for sustaining life in a time of severe hardship. But what happens when the severe hardship comes upon us? Then what will we do? Because today is the day to be prepping in the land of plenty because the lean years of 2022 are a coming, are a coming. You see, you and I, metaphorically, we are Joseph because we know Messiah ben Joseph. And because of that, we are in a powerful position for insight and preparedness that many people who are just awakening from a sleep cycle do not have that kind of discernment. So you can be a help. You can be a help because you have the Joseph anointing. So as we go through the text here, you're going to see some things that pop out. We get, of course, to the cupbearer. Have you ever encountered a backslidden believer or backslidden yourself. Well, here in chapter 41, we see a person, the cupbearer, who had met and experienced Joseph in prison, hadn't he? He had, he had, Joseph had given him the vision, and then he forgot about him. How many times when someone encounters Messiah ben Joseph, and they have that deep encounter, but then they get returned back into life and they forget or they backslide or they become more in tune with the world than with the word. Well, this is exactly what happened with the cupbearer because he had met and experienced Joseph's power and anointing. But once he was redeemed, once he was taken out of the prison, out of his tough trial, out of his tough situation, and he was back in the lap of luxury, he forgot Joseph. I know in my life, when things are tough, that's when I really, really have the struggle and the encounters with Messiah. And then when things are easier, you're like, oh, life is good. Now is a time of challenge, I think, for all of us in this world. It's a time of challenge. It's a time to be experiencing Yahushua ben Joseph. Because we do not want to be let out of prison and then forget what we have been taught and what we've experienced with his anointing. It has to be deep within us. Now notice it says, at, at the time it came to pass, at the end of two full years. Well, we know... A day is as a thousand years in Hosea chapter 6. So after 2,000 years or two days prophetically, 
the redeemed will hearken back to Joseph after apathy and forgetfulness and a lack of zeal. And I think a lot of people are starting to awaken up to the Hebrew roots of their faith. And they're starting to come back to Moshiach ben Yosef. And this is absolutely, I think, very, very pertinent to the Torah Pasha. It is the awakening to Joseph. The awakening. He who is hidden becomes revealed. There is a sleep cycle and then an awakening from that sleep cycle. Verse 8. So in the morning, Pharaoh, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. None. None. When will we learn from this? When will we learn from the past the complete and utter failure of heathen magic. Here, it's contrasted with the perfect wisdom of Yahuwah. Reality check. Pharaoh and his court looked to the magicians, Johns and Jambres, it tells us in the Brit Hadashah. How is this different today from the kings of the earth and the courts of men looking to science? When I say science, I say science in apprentices. Because it's not real science. It's interesting, though, because even in Wikipedia, it acknowledges that science has its origins in the Egypt of this time. Meaning, science's origins are Egyptian heathen magic, a sleight of hand, the manipulator of, the manipulation of data. Fauci and Gates, you know, they are the modern day Johns and Jambres that have bewitched the whole world who is awakening from a sleep cycle to this new reality that these magicians, Johns and Jambres, have magically manifest. And the Pharaoh and his court buy into this. It takes a Joseph breakthrough for people to awaken out of that sleep cycle of drinking the Kool-Aid. Now look at verse 30. It's going to consume the land. It's going to consume the land. The land is the people. So all the people who listened to John's and John Bray's, they would perish, right? All the people that listen to Fauci and Gates, what is their end going to be too? Because this has its roots in Egyptian occult magic, science. The kind of science that is not backed up by data, it's an illusion, a sleight of hand, a manipulation of data. The Johns and Jambres of our generation. It's the time for the tribes of Joseph who have the diviner's cup. What does that mean? The divine wisdom to discern the times. We really have to discern the times. And may I digress just a little right now to the Brit Hadashah. Because we'd look at this vision, this dream now that Pharaoh had. Okay, and I like to have a little bit of fun with this because I call this flip-flop theology. And I'd like to call this out because we were trained in this erroneously for many, many years. What do we do with dreams and visions? Well, firstly, we try and dream it again, twice, to establish a matter. Because otherwise it could have just been too much garlic on your pizza. Okay. I don't know. I've had so many people over the years come to me and say, I had a dream. I'm like, okay, okay, well, go dream it again and then come back to me. Visions and dreams, how do we interpret them scripturally? Well, visions and dreams, according to churchmen, are made what? Literal, aren't they? Visions and dreams are made literal. And then the literal commandments are spiritualized away. That is modern church theology. The Sabbath. Oh, well, that's a spiritual precept. 
Well, when did it turn from a commandment to a precept? Isn't it a commandment? Could you show me the verse where Sabbath is a precept? Because last time I checked, it's a commandment. It's a literal commandment. And visions and dreams, they're visions and dreams. They don't become commandments because they're visions and dreams. What happened? This is what happened. Peter had a vision. He had a vision. Now, according to flip-flop theology, all of a sudden, he had all of these lovely, lovely, juicy little snakes and scorpions come down in a picnic cloth, which now means that you can go out and have yourself a barbecue pork brisket. How did the... It's a vision, man. It's a vision. Why are we turning a vision into a literal commandment? This makes no sense. Peter, he has a vision, Acts chapter 10. And a vision is interpreted literally. The dietary commandments are now apparently abolished. It's a vision. But people, churchmen, have taught us to interpret it literally. Then Peter's interpretation of the dream in Acts 28, he tells you, and this is what Peter says in Acts 28, 10 verse 28, but we didn't listen. But Yahweh has shown me, how did he show you? In the vision, that was the vehicle to show you, not to call any man common or unclean. So we actually get the interpretation given to us by Peter of what the vision, the vehicle was meant to convey. But we, that's not good enough for us. We're like, no, no. This is a vision that is now going to turn into a literal new commandment. This does not make any sense. Because to be consistent with that type of thought and theology, bear with me now, then according to that thought and theology, um, you and me need to run out into the field and rescue the seven fine-looking fat cows from the seven ugly and gaunt cows, don't we? We need to just go out there and run and rescue them, don't we? And then we've got to go rescue the seven plump and full heads from the seven thin heads. It makes no sense. But that is what modern church theology teaches. And people don't even stop when Peter says, Hey, I've got the interpretation for the vision. Yahweh has shown me. That should be enough. That should be enough. In truth, in truth, Acts chapter 10 is a vision that is conveying a prophetic vision from Hosea that is now come into fulfillment in the New Testament, and it is so powerful. Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision is the fulfillment of Hosea chapter 2, verse 18, where Hosea was given the symbols of the future new covenant. Hosea was given the symbols of the future new covenant of which Peter is a recipient of and he's about to go and find no man unclean and bring Cornelius into that new covenant reality. And the vision that he gets in Acts chapter 10 is a picture of Hosea chapter 2 verse 18 in its future new covenant fulfillment, which came into fulfillment within Peter's vision and Cornelius's application. It's amazing. One vision fulfilled in another vision by both emissaries of Elohim, Hosea and Peter respectively. Listen, Hosea 2.18, and in that day I will cut a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and with the creeping things on the ground. That's the new covenant. Therefore, those symbols are manifest in the vision for Peter to convey that the new covenant has come to Cornelius' house. This isn't some New Testament concept. This is prophecy fulfilled. 
But we have to interpret visions and dreams as visions and dreams. And we have to keep the literal commandments of Yahweh. The Acts vision is about an unclean Gentile. Unclean according to Judaism. Not unclean according to the Torah. Because the Torah says that all 12 tribes and the sojourner and the homeborn and the foreigner shall be as one. There's no distinction. You graft in Romans 11. But Judaism taught that the Gentile, the Goy, was unclean. So Peter was now given this vision, which was the prophetic symbols of Hosea 2.18, to convey that now there is the cutting of the new covenant. Entrance, Cornelius, has become clean through Messiah. So we just cannot go into the, into the New Testament and lift out the little sheep verses. Because people love to go to Acts 10 and lift out the sheep verse. Oh, all food is clean. Well, where did we get this from? If Yahushua had truly made all foods clean, then why would a vision be required? And why was Peter confused? And why would it be after eight years? You see, these are the questions that are, have remained unanswered. You see, when a person eats pork, for instance, it does touch their tongue, correct? Does it touch their lips? Well, then you would tie that in with 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, where it's written, Therefore come out from among them and be separated, says the Master, and do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Let alone eat it. You're not even supposed to touch the unclean thing. Matthew 5.17 Think not that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I not come to destroy but to fulfill, to bring into its full abundance meaning. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the Torah. Yes, there's going to be a transfer. Hebrews 7.11 from the Levitical into the Malkitzedic but that's because that transference took from the Malkitzedic to the Levitical in the first place when they broke the covenant and now it's transferred back that's not an adding or taking away from the commandments because it's built into the Torah that you can transfer priesthoods within the Torah that's ordained from Yahuwah that's not an addition and that's not a taking away it's in the Torah is transference. Hebrews 7.11. So this is the wonderful fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven in our days. As we're starting to see many, many people all over the world. We had over, what, over 90 people this morning on Shabbat Fellowship from all over the world. Coming in to Israel. Grafting in. And anyway, you always have to deal with Leviticus when it comes to what you put inside of your body. And the swine, though he divide the hoof and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean to you. Still unclean to you, he is unclean to you. Of their flesh shall ye not eat, and their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean to you. You see, religious people will go around judging sinners. Oh, you did this, you did this. Yet the religious people are touching the unclean and eating the unclean and defiling themselves as much as the sinner. Because unclean is unclean is unclean. It's called tamay. It's a biblical precept. It's a biblical commandment to stay tahor, clean. So you see what religion does? Religion looks down upon the sinner with no mercy, no compassion, when really we need to be reaching out and bringing them in because they are awakening from a sleep cycle and they haven't been trained with the Joseph anointing because they haven't met Joseph yet. That's our purpose in this life, to introduce people to Joseph. After they awaken from a sleep cycle, if they're full-on slumbering, they're not going to wake. You have to wait until they start to awaken from the sleep cycle and then you can 
bring forth the manifestation of the Joseph anointing to them. But you can't force it on people. I've tried that. When they're asleep and you're like, oh, it's the Sabbath, you know, and they're just like, what are you talking about? You, you're, you're totally a zealot. You're totally in a cult, right? Because they have no desire to wake from their sleep cycle. But you and I, once we started to awake, we were primed. And now look what the Father's done in our lives. This truly is fabulous. And then when you see the biblical hermeneutics of visions and dreams and commandments, it becomes a lot more self-explanatory to me with good Bible hermeneutics. The problem is we've been dumbed down to listen to human rhetoric rather than read and use biblical reasoning. That's the problem. Now, we're going to get into the text here with four statements on what Yahuwah is doing. Regardless of what a failure I am, and an utter failure at times, and you are, and you are, we are fallen, but we pursue the Joseph anointing. And in spite of you and in spite of me, there are things that Yahuwah is doing. Whether you're in prison or whether you're, you've been raised up to the right hand of the Father or Pharaoh in this case, right? Yahweh is in the middle, in the midst, he's doing. Four statements in our text of what Yahweh is doing. Not what Matthew's doing, not what Don's doing. No, it's not what we're doing. It's what Yahweh is doing. It's not what Joseph is doing, it's but what Yahweh does in spite of Joseph's failures, in spite of Joseph's successes. These statements reflect the fullness of faith in the life of the followers of Ben Yosef, of course, Yahusha, because the role and relationship of Yahusha, it's always been about what? What the Father's doing. I did not come of my own, but my Father sent me. The role of Yahushua has always been about the Father's, what he's doing. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your. It's about what the Father is doing. So by joining with Yahushua every morning, every day, in faith, we put ourselves in the pathway of providence. As the Father fulfills his promises in spite of me. In spite of my failures. It's what he's doing. In spite of false witnesses. The Father was still working in spite of Potiphar's wife the false witness, in spite of pits, in spite of prisons, in spite of circumstances, good or bad, the role of Yahusha in my life, in your life, is what the Father's accomplishing, in spite of our failures. And in times of trial, when I stumble and fall, this is what gets me through. Because if my faith is about me, then it's a failure. It has to be about what the Father is doing in spite of me, in spite of you. That gives me great hope. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahuwah. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future, brethren, and to give you hope. My favorite prophet, Jeremiah the prophet, the 29th chapter, the 11th verse. So now we're going to see in Genesis chapter 41, verse 15, in Genesis 41, verse 16, in Genesis 41, verse 25, in Genesis 41, verse 28, and Genesis 41, verse 32, we are going to see the build-up to the four things that Yahweh is doing. 41 verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me, 
Yahweh will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Number one, Yahweh gives. It's Yahweh who gives. Number two, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Yahweh shows Pharaoh what he is about to do. It's Yahweh who shows and he shows his servants the things that will shortly come to pass because we've awoken out of a sleep cycle. How could we have been slumbering for so long? But we have awoken out of a sleep cycle and now Yahweh is showing you his commandments, his life, his son. The third statement of what Yahweh is doing is verse 28. It is, as I told Pharaoh, Yahweh has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So Yahweh gives, Yahweh shows, Yahweh has shown, number three, and number four in verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by Yahweh and Yahweh will shortly bring it to pass. The fourth and final thing that Yahweh is doing. If your life feels chaotic, you're in a prison, you're in a pit, you're in... You know what? Yahweh has fixed your life if you are in his son, Yahushua. He has fixed it. He has fixed your life and he will shortly bring it to pass. This gives me great comfort in times of desperation and I must admit somewhat hopeless at times out there. I'm not hopeless because of my faith, but if it wasn't for what Yahweh is doing and that my life is fixed in Him, it's bigger than me, it's bigger than my successes, it's bigger than my mistakes. It's fixed. That means He's guiding he is, he is the great shepherd. He is shepherding and guiding us through life. And when we stumble and fall, he is merciful and great and gracious. So Joseph explains how Pharaoh gives, how Yahweh gives Pharaoh the answer. Joseph explains how it is Yahweh who gives Pharaoh the answer. It's not him. And that answer is an answer that brings shalom. Because it's a practical advice on the impeding, impending crisis and how it should be met. It's practical. It's not hyper-spiritual. It is practical advice on how the impending crisis should be met. We need practical advice on how the impending crisis is going to be met in 2022. They're talking about permanent mask mandates here in Oregon. They're trying to push that through. We've got vaccine passports left, right, and center. We need practical advice on how to navigate the impending crises. I mean, you can be a spiritual dreamer all you want, and I have no problems with spiritual dreams. I want spiritual dreams. Amos says that we will have spiritual dreams. But you can be a spiritual dreamer, but don't become so heavenly minded that you limit your earthly good. Because you're walking around in spiritual la-la land, too much time in the clouds, it can adversely affect your earthly effectiveness in preparing those in the world for the coming calamity. Joseph had balance. He had balance. Joseph, the dreamer, proves himself a man of practical affairs. It's good to dream. It's good to be prophetic. But we must be about practical affairs for the facing of the coming calamity. Verse 36. That food shall reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. And verse 38. 
in whom the Ruach of Yahweh is. So, brethren, Yahweh has called you. He has called you and I to have the ability to combine supernatural power with the practical, practical aspects of being a statesman. What we see with Joseph is diplomacy and equity. These are Josephite traits that enable us to stand in the gap. And it is phenomenal. So as we go down now in, in chapter 37, oh no, verse 37, you can see Joseph's rise to power now as he has correctly interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. And Joseph is now anointed and appointed in verse 37. And he's given seven gifts. He's given authority, a signet ring, which is rulership. He's given a gold necklace, which is majesty. He's given a chariot. He's given a new name. He's given a bride. Do you see the shadow? Do you see the shadow picture? Just as us with Yahushua. When we come to know Joseph, when we come to know Yahushua as our Messiah, we are given spiritual gifts. We are given a supernatural authority. We are given the signet ring of rulership of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We are given the golden necklace of majesty of the Malkitzedic priesthood. We are given a chariot of vision just like Elijah. We are given a new name and we become the bride. All of these gifts were given to Joseph and Joseph gives these gifts to men. Sons of men. Now, as we go down further, we see Joseph's rise to power. And of course, he's called Zathnath Pananea, which means the bread man of life, or in Egyptology, the Savior. He's the one that provides the bread of life and saves a whole people. The metaphors of dripping there, of course. Now, Joseph. Think about this, how the true faith that was once delivered to the saints as it dispersed up into Greece and into Rome and then came captured under the Nicene Council of 325, Christianity really became hidden in the nations as far as the true faith, right? It's really like Joseph, isn't it? Joseph, a metaphor for Christianity, dressed up like a pagan sun god with eye makeup on, looks like an Egyptian. His tribal brothers couldn't even recognize him. And that's what's happened. Religion has dressed up Jesus that he is unrecognizable as the Hebrew Messiah. So that the tribal brothers, they can't, they can't recognize him. But what we find in the narrative is that buried within Judaism's sacks of tradition is Joseph's cup. What is Joseph's cup? Every single year, the Jews sit down and they have the Passover Seder. And they are drinking the third cup of the Passover. That's Joseph's cup that's hidden in their sacks of tradition. And they've been drinking from Messiah ben Joseph's cup for thousands of years, but they do not recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian, because he looks like a Roman Catholic, because he, he does not resemble their tribal brother. Because he's been taken over by Egyptology and the world and the traditions of men. Verse 49, and Joseph gathered much corn as the sand of the sea until he stopped numbering it, for it was without number, as the sand of the sea. This, of course, reminds me of Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, as Yahushua is gathering us in like the sand of the seashore. There is so much here, and we can see as we go further in verse um, 50. And Joseph, to him were born two sons before the years of famine came, with Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of on, 
on bore to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, Elohim has made me forget all my toil and all my past in my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for Elohim has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So here we can see, like kind after like kind, Joseph, he is a Hebrew. He has a wife who is a pagan, and he is given birth to children that are partly good Hebrews and partly spiritual pagans. Was that you and I? Right? Ephraim and Manasseh, half Hebrews, half pagans, half entrenched in sun god worship. This is, of course, the history of the church over the past 2,000 years. The descendants of Joseph scattered into the nations. In England, after the Industrial Revolution, it was said that we had forgotten our toil and our father's house. And, of course, that, many would say, the tribes of Manasseh are scattered through the British Isles. And then many would say that Ephraim is scattered all throughout the nations of the world, the other tribes. Ephraim, of course, being the leading of the ten northern tribes. And Stephen Collins does a great job on the traits and um, migration of the um, tribal, tribal brothers as they went out into the dispersion. It's absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. And here we go into verse um, chapter 42. And then in chapter 42, verse 25, the brothers return now back to their father. And Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack. And this is what happens when we encounter Messiah Yahusha, grace. He restores to us that which was lost. We don't have to buy anything. We cannot buy our salvation. Whatever we do, he is the one that restores it back into our lives. What, what the plunderer took, Yahushua will restore it back into our lives. He gives them provision for the way, and this he did for them. And they loaded their donkeys with corn and departed there. Verse 27. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder in the inn, he saw his money for see it was in the sack's mouth. And he said to his brother, my money is restored and see it is even in my sack. And their hearts failed them, and they were greatly distressed, saying one to another, What is this that Elohim has done to us? Meaning, Yahweh knows the hearts of man. And what they had done to Joseph all those years before, they knew that Yahweh knows the hearts of man. And they came to Yaakov, Jacob their father, to the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is master of the land spoke roughly to us, and he saw us as spies of his country. And we said to him, We are upright right men. We are not spies. So again, this is all about now the negotiations of Joseph and the tribal brothers. And he says, well, you know what? You're going to need to bring your youngest brother back. And who becomes the surety for the youngest brother? We find that finally, finally here in verse 8 of chapter 43, we see the brothers returning with Benjamin. And then we see that the nature of Judah changes. What is his nature? He makes teshuvah. He makes repentance, just like David did before Nathan the prophet. Here we see Judah making that change of nature into teshuva, because Judah represents the tribe of Judah that would always march first, march first around the, the tabernacle, march first through the land. And Yehuda, verse 8, Judah said to Israel his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shall you require him. I will bring him not to you and set him again before you. Then let me bear the blame forever and ever. 
For if we had not lingered, surely by now we had would have returned this second time. So here is the change of nature. That's the power of what the Father is doing in people's lives. In spite of his time in the nations with Tamar and all the, all the trouble that he had down there with Tamar or Tamar. And then in verse 13 we see of chapter 43, Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man, and El Shaddai will give you rachamin, mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I will bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So right here we can see the trusting and the submission to El Shaddai, knowing that he will give you mercy, rachamin, when you go before the man. Who's the man? Joseph. The father, El Shaddai, will give you mercy when you come into relationship with Joseph. And that's where the mercy is. That's the mercy. Verse 17. And the man did as Joseph asked, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. They were afraid because of the treasure that was in our sacks of tradition. We should have known. All, my, all these years at the Passover Seder, we've been drinking of Messiah's cup, the third cup of the Passover. We should have known. When they look upon him who they pierced, they will be very, very afraid. But they will encounter El Shaddai's mercy when they stand before the man. They were afraid and they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks, because of the grace that you cannot buy from Messiah, it's a free gift. That first time we were brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for servants and our donkeys. But this is not the trait of Joseph. Joseph is one of mercy. And now we come down to verse 23. I know I'm skipping, but we have a, a, a fair bit to go through um, to get to um, the end of the Torah portion. And then next week we'll be in chapter 44, verse 18, and it's Torah portion, Vaigash. So bear with me as I kind of skip, skip through. Hopefully you've been able to read through this cycle during the week so you're familiar with what we're teaching on today. In verse 23, and he said, Shalom be to you, Shalom Alechem, fear not your Elohim, and the Elohim of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and he brought Simeon out to them. This is an Egyptian, an Egyptian says this, therefore Joseph is bearing testimony to Yahweh whilst in exile as we should be bearing testimony to Yahuwah whilst we're out here in exile too, you see? Because Joseph had been sharing the faith, obviously, with his servant. And in verse 26, And when Joseph came home, they brought him in the present that was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him and to the earth. Now, Remember, when they came before, they bowed, but there wasn't enough bowing, was there, according to the dream. But here we see all 11, like the dream, have now bowed. So now is the time of revealing. It would have been too early. It would have been premature, according to the dream prophecy. But now Joseph sees that this is the time of revealing. And verse 29, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother about whom you spoke to me? And he said, Elohim, give you unmerited favor, my son. And Joseph hurried for his emotions did yearn for his brother. And he sought somewhere to weep and he entered into his room and wept there. Just as, of course, Yahushua did. In Luke chapter 19, we see that Yahushua did what? Went into his room and he wept over Jerusalem. 
You see, this is a shadow because Joseph was hidden from their eyes. They were surrounded by Egyptians who would eventually enslave them and they didn't realize they were visiting with their brother Joseph. How is that true of so many of us? Surrounded by the very people that would enslave us. When really we should be visiting with Messiah ben Joseph each and every day. Because we are surrounded by people that want to enslave us. And the only way out is to stand before the man, Joseph. That's your only deliverance. Because we are in a perilous situation just like the Egyptians were with the upcoming famine. And then we find now further in verse 31. And he washed his face and he went out and restrained himself and said, Serve the food. And they set a table for him by himself and for them by themselves. For the Egyptians did not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled at one another. And he took and sent portions to them from before him. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. And they drank and they had joy with him. Now, again, going back to our clean and unclean and our dreams and our visions in Acts chapter 10, I have to note here, if the Egyptians understand the distinction in regulations to table fellowship, then why don't people today? Have we so far gone that we don't understand the distinguishments and distinctions, excuse me, in table fellowship? And here we have in chapter 44, now Joseph commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's sack with food and as much as they can carry and put every man's money in his sack's mouth and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. So this, of course, is Joseph's cup is now in their Passover sacks of traditions is the analogy and metaphor. And it is an abundance of overflowing if they were soon to discover it. And then in verse 5 we see, Is not this the cup? The cup, the one from which my master drinks and by which he, he divines. You have done evil in so doing. And he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. So Joseph, he could divine the future by the power of Yahuwah of which he received his position, the cup. So many people go, oh, I don't get this diviner's cup. Was he into divination? No. It's that he could divine the future, how? By the power of Yahuwah through his visions and dreams. And that's how he received his position. And the cup represents that position. The Hebrew word for divine here is nachash, and it means to diligently observe. And it was given to him, and he was designated as a ruler because of Yahuwah divining the future and enabling Joseph, of course, to be able to receive the vision and the dream. He's not into divination. Just want to clear that up. And verse 9. And with whoever of your servants it is found, the cup, let him die, and we also will be my master's servants. This is what the brothers say now, and this is where we come to the crux of the Parsha. And he said, verse 10, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and you shall be blameless. Then they speedily took took down every man his sack to the ground and opened every man his sack. And he searched, and he began at the eldest and stopped at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So Joseph's third cup is found in their sacks of tradition. This is, of course, the Zechariah prophecy of which the future is a coming. And then they tore their clothes and loaded every man his donkey and returned to the city. And Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house 
for he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly divine? And there again we have that Hebrew phrase, Nechash, Nechash. And Judah intercedes. Judah, right here in verse 16, finally takes responsibility for restoration. Judah believes they have to go to the nations to get the dispersed of Ephraim, which they renamed Judah. But they believe one must turn from Joseph to Judah in order to find restoration. We don't turn from Joseph to Judah to find restoration. Judah has to turn from Judah to Joseph. Judah has to get over himself and stand and face Joseph. It's not the other way around. And that's the most troubling thing. When I see people that come into the, get excited about the Hebrew roots and the Hebrew faith, and then the next thing, they're getting into everything Hebrew, and they turn from Joseph to Judah. And you're like, no, 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 you've got it wrong. You're supposed to be getting Judah to turn from Judah to Joseph. We're not supposed to be going over to Judaism. Judaism is supposed to be coming over and joining with Messiah Ben Joseph and the two sticks become one in his hand. How many people have gone off the path because they turned from Joseph to Judah? Upside down, flip-flop theology. And we come to the conclusion. Verse 16, And Judah said, What shall we say to my master? What shall we speak? Or shall we clear ourselves? Elohim has found out the iniquity of your servants. See, we are my master's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. And he said, Elohim forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found he shall be my servant. And as for the rest of you, go in shalom to the Father. And there's the test. There's the test right now as they now go back and they have to deal with Joseph. They have to deal with their sin, their transgressions, and their iniquity because Yahweh sees the heart of man. This Torah portion is so packed with prophecy but it's so packed with how we are to live in this life. We are to be statesmen like Joseph. We are to walk in diplomacy and equity. These are the Josephite traits that we are to manifest today, to stand in the gap. Because we can't be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use, that we're not able to prepare for the famine in the land. Is there a famine coming in the land? There is an east wind blowing. We have to see the days and the time. I remember being at a messianic conference back in 2008 down in Florida, okay? Or maybe it was in South Carolina. I went in 2008 to South Carolina, I think, in 2009 to um, a messianic conference in um, Florida. Okay, and we were doing all the calendaration and all the timelines, and it was very, 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 very thorough. And people were really, really concerned about the, the sackcloth suns and the blood moons that were coming in 2012. You know, this was going to be the end, the Messiah was coming. They even brought a movie out of it, right? There was even a movie called 2012, I think, wasn't it? And anyway, it was all quite a big thing, and all of those... Um, Mark Biltz and other pastors come up, kind of got on, gone in on the commercial side of it and uh, you know, really started uh, spouting that stuff. And it came and it passed. But I remember one of the, uh, the rabbi down there, um, he, he said something that was really kind of cut against the whole grain of the conference. And he was like, you know, I don't think it's going to be 2012. He said, according to my calculations and da-da-da-da-da-da, I'm looking at 20, 2022, 2023. And we were like, oh, no. I mean, that's no way. He's, he's going to be coming back before. And that seems so far, far in the future. And now look where we're at. Look where we are at and look at where the world is at. 
We are, the east wind is blowing in. This is a time of preparation, of awakening from a sleep cycle. And your only salvation is the bread man of life. Otherwise, there is going to be a famine spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially. And there are people that are primed right now to come and meet Joseph. So this portion, it inspires me. It truly does. Let's get to see what you have in the chat. Put your comments up in the chat here for me. Let's see if I can find you here. All right. Redline me if you'd like me to um, visibly see your, your chat. Live chat. Okay. All right. Emissary of Elohim puts the scripture, Luke 12, verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, shall find watching. Truly I say to you that he shall gird himself and make them sit down to eat and shall come and serve them. Thank you, Emissary of Elohim. Good word. Very good word. Lots of scriptures being put up there by Emissary of Elohim. Praise Yahuwah. Astrid, blessings to all ten tribes scattered across the four corners of the earth. Yahusha is gathering his sheep. He is. It's the Joseph anointing. And Chris De La Rosa says, what about the other two tribes? Yes, greetings to the twelve tribes <laughs> scattered abroad. That is right. And then Tony Ingram says, yes, Rome has covered the true Messiah with Babylonian paganism, an Easter meal of pig traded for a Passover lamb. And Joseph is unrecognizable to his tribal brothers when he's dressed up like that. We need to present the true Joseph, and that will be the time of revealing All right, just working through the chat here. Give me a second here, just trying to navigate all this. No, Joseph is not the Messiah. No, of course not. But Messiah ben Joseph. So we're using Joseph as a metaphor and an allergy for the prophetic fulfillment of, of course, Yahushua ben Yosef being the Messiah. So there's the traits of Joseph are carried, excuse me, carried through to Messiah ben Yosef. Oh, Debbie Hill says, because of the La, La Palma situation, I've been re-watching the Revelation teaching, especially chapters 8 through 9. Yada, yada, yada. Is it still too early to flee to the mountains or wilderness? Well, we do have some that did flee from the East Coast because of um, thinking about the La Palma. But um, I know Brandon on his Much More channel or Beacon Hill now has got um, some information on that. So I'd, I'd recommend you bounce over there if you want to find more about uh, the La Palma situation. I'm, I'm not uh, so up on it, but I, I do have... Uh, I can get hold of the man who is, if need be. All right, we'll finish up here. 
with Yaharia Gonzalez. Brother, I started reading the 12 Testimony of the Patriarchs this week after hearing from you. He settled. I really like it. Is it all truth what's written there? No, it's not all. It's, a, it's you know, it's extra biblical, but it, there's some really good um, nuggets in there, some really good nuggets in there. And, you know, you have to use discernment going through the um, testament, um, the 12 testimony of the patriarchs. So, yes. Well, Baruch Hashem, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. That was Torah portion, Miketz. And again, thank you for tuning in and supporting the ministry. Give us some thumbs up at this point and, and do subscribe to the ministry channel because that really helps as well. And greet one another and bless one another in the chat as you depart. And you can always go and put a comment down in the comment section. And we'll look forward to seeing you next Sabbath live. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>